I cannot begin my message this morning without thanking your pastor for the invitation to come and worship with you. It was, oh, I think somewhere around maybe 40 years ago or so that I preached at Talwood Baptist Church, but it was in a different building and in a different location, and I believe that building is gone now. But your pastor was Russell Dilday uh, at the time, and then in later years he came to be the president of the seminary, and I served some wonderful years with him, and so I remember Talwood with deep and profound appreciation, but also the fact that our daughter, son-in-law, who moved here from San Diego, California, now living in Houston, are now attending and worshiping and members of this church, so I'm deeply grateful for the invitation to come and worship with you. Also, I warned Larry at the early service this morning that I listened to see how my former students introduced me. <clears throat> Occasionally, I'll go out and I'll preach, and the student will get up and say, Dr. Toller was the hardest professor I ever had. His tests and examinations were so mean and so hard. I go back to the seminary and change their grades. I lower their grades. And, <laughs> no, I can't, but I've been tempted to do that sometimes, but I did not. And if they're gracious and nice, I go back and raise their grade, but sometimes I don't have to. But I usually don't remember really what they made in the classes because I try not to know their grade because I want them to know that I do not judge them by the grades they make, I want them to know that I see them as the children of God, servants of God, and I like to know them on that basis, so I honestly do not remember uh, then the grades that they made. But I always do listen with some interest uh, when they do. Some years ago, I was speaking in Arkansas, and Dennis Swanberg, the Christian comedian, you may have heard him on television, now has his own program, who loves to imitate different people, including me. Uh, and because I talk so fast that he talks real fast like me, and so he really let me have it at the Association of Former Students up there. So, man, I mean, he took me apart, so I followed him on the program. <laughs> I said, Dennis, I said, I knew you were dumb, didn't know you were stupid. <laughs> I said, you never pick on the person who's going to follow you on the program. I just said, uh, I said, oh, I remember you well, Dennis. I had you in class. I said, in fact, if I'd been a world-class marksman, so with a high-powered rifle with a telescope and telelens on their crosshairs, I said, so that I could have hit the tiniest target possible, I'd have blown your brains out, I said to him. Man, I'm telling you, I began to pull them all out. In a few moments, old Dennis was waving his white handkerchief. He was surrendering because I said, don't ever get up and lay it on the person behind you. So Larry was nice this morning, so I won't have to go back and change his grade or lower his grade. I had one boy picked on me. I knew him well so I could tease him. So I said the same thing. I go back and change his grade. But I said, how do you lower an elf? I don't know how do you lower an elf, you know. <laughs> well, I was just teasing. I had no idea what he made. But anyway, it's a joy to come and worship with you on this Lord's Day morning. Thank you for uh, having me and for your pastor inviting me. This morning, there's a passage of Scripture that God has laid on my heart that I want to share with you. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to the little letter Philippians. And if you want to use the pulpit Bible there, you will find that on pages 1163 in the New American, I mean, excuse me, the New International Version, the NIV. Let me read it from a revised standard version, but you follow whatever Bible you have, whatever Bible you love. Let me read these verses, and we're going to focus on verses 7 through 10, but let me give you just a moment of background. In the earlier verses of chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul is Telling to them, some of them wanted to somehow or other feel that they kind of had life by, you might say, uh, in both hands. They were in charge of life. Paul has picked up a little pride on their part. He says, now, if you want to brag, 
from the human viewpoint, Paul says, I'll brag with the best of you. He said, I'm an Israelite. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And by the way, if they didn't remember that, the tribe of Benjamin produced the first king, King Saul. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. We believe the Bible more than all you people that think you believe the Bible. Paul goes and gives seven things that he says from the human viewpoint. I had all I needed to face life and death. To face time and eternity. And I was having a wonderful time until I met a man on the Damascus Road. And he changed my life because he made me realize I didn't have things under control nearly as much as I thought I did. And when I met him, I realized those seven things I thought were so adequate were not adequate. And he gave me some new things that prepared me not only for time but for eternity. Not only for a life but for a death and prepared me for what John says in Revelation 21.1 prepared me for that new heaven and a new earth. Now, folks, if there's to be a new heaven and new earth, it means then that some of our old things for this earth and time may not prepare us and make us adequate for it. So Paul said, Jesus gave me some things new. And what he says is rather amazing, rather startling. And for a moment, we want to kind of argue just a little with Paul, but listen to what Paul says because he says something that I think can be very relevant to all of us today who want our lives to count for something, not just for time, but also when death comes, what if there is something beyond life and death? Are we prepared for that new heaven, new earth? So look at Philippians 3, if you will, please, and let me read now and you follow with verse 7. Yet whatever gains... I had, now he's referring to those seven things earlier. Whatever things I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But this is not the best translation possible. The Greek word here is not the verb form knowing. It's not that verb form. It's a noun. More literally should be translated the value of the knowledge of Christ. Knowledge of Christ. My Lord, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. He said, and I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I want us to pause here because we don't have time, even as fast as I talk, to cover all seven. But I want us to focus on three. And there are three operative words that made all the difference in his life and prepared him for that new heaven and that new earth. The first operative word is in verse 8. That word, therefore, knowledge or knowing. Listen to this rather astounding statement that Paul says. He says, I regard as loss the surpassing, as loss because the passing value of knowledge of Christ. His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and regard them but rubbish or waste. Rubbish or waste. Now this is a rather astounding statement for Paul. Because as a professor who spent my life as a teacher in the classroom, and I was sharing with the earlier congregation that 
I'm in my 74th consecutive year in a classroom. I doubt there's anyone in this auditorium who has spent more than 74 consecutive years. Oh, I did miss one fall. In the fall of 1987, I was on a sabbatic leave. I was dean of the School of Theology, and I was visiting some other seminaries, studying their curriculums to compare them with the curriculum of the School of Theology at Southwestern so we could be the best curriculum or have the best curriculum. I visited Princeton Theological Seminary, Harvard Divinity School, and some other distinguished uh, places to compare. But outside that fall, I've been in a classroom as student or professor of both since 1934. And as a person spent his life in the classroom, I'm astounded by something Paul says here. He says, when I met Christ, I came to a knowledge that made all my former knowledge, as it were, rubbish or waste or obsolete. Now, that's incredible. As a professor who specializes biblical history and biblical archaeology and biblical geography, I have studied the lifestyles of rabbis in the first century, and I know what kind of training Paul went through. As a brilliant young genius, and I regard him as a true super genius, If there's anybody in this auditorium this morning who can write one letter, one article, one book, one journal entry or whatnot, that 2,000 years from now, hundreds of millions of people will read your letter or your article or your book and thousands of brilliant scholars will analyze every verb form, every phrase, every clause, what it modifies. You'll go down as a super genius from the 21st century when most of the rest of us will be forgotten and lost if Christ does not come back. And Paul wrote 13 such letters. The letter of Romans probably is the most influential letter ever written in the history of the human race. I'm prepared to back that up. I believe the letter of Romans is the most influential letter ever written in the history of the human race. It changed the life of hundreds of millions of people, including Augustine, Augustine, who is still today an influential philosopher, theologian for Roman Catholics and Protestants. It changed the life of Martin Luther and John Wesley, and through Luther, all the millions of Lutherans, and through Wesley, the millions of Methodists, and through Luther and Augustine and Wesley, us as Baptists, and you name me another letter. That has changed so many millions of lives and whose every verb form is analyzed by intelligent scholars today. And this man says, I thought I had all the knowledge I needed. I was a gifted, brilliant young rabbi. I could tell you how many times the letter B, Beth, in the Hebrew alphabet occurred in the book of Amos, or in the book of Hosea. I knew them backward and forward. I could quote entire books from Hebrew. I believe he could. There's a Muslim university in Cairo, Egypt, to which I've been 20, 25 times. And in that university, to graduate, the young Muslim must quote the Koran from memory in Arabic. It'd be like our saying to our seminary students, you must quote the New Testament in Greek from memory. I'm afraid not many would graduate, including us professors. <laughs> now, Paul is among the intellectual elite. He said, I thought I knew all I needed to know, and I met man called Jesus Christ and realized he is God incarnate. To know him is to know the invisible creator of this infinite universe. And to know him is to know life and truth forever. And I realized that type of knowledge made all my former knowledge, as it were, trivia. Trivia. Abounding to nothing. What an incredible, incredible statement. But if Jesus Christ is The only time in history 
The creator God has revealed himself incarnate, lived among us without sin, died and rose from the dead and is going to return again as Lord of this universe. Then Paul was right to know him is the greatest knowledge and greater than anything else that we can know. But speaking of trivia, some years ago, our son, who is now an attorney with the FAA living there in the Fort Worth area, was Pascal High School. And the high school of Dallas Fort Worth decided that they would have a contest among high school students, somewhat like there was a college program on television among university young people, called the College Bowl. A group of colleges decided that they would have academic contests, kind of like we have athletic contests. Four young people from this university sat behind this table, four from this university behind that table. A moderator, some judges would ask questions, value points, sometimes one point, five, ten, no more than twenty. And whoever thought he or she could answer the question, they punched a button and a light would flash and a buzzer would sound and the judge would decide you, you get to go first because you buzz first. When it was over, they told the points and the sponsors donated a thousand dollars to the university represented by the young people. Young people didn't get the money. So the high school said, we're going to do that. Our son got to be one of the four competing with Pascal High School. I knew a little about competing for scholarships or things like this because I'd competed in Louisiana as a high school student with the top six seniors of every high school in the state for a couple of scholarships at LSU. So I knew how to study for competitive examinations. So I was helping my son one day and he brought home a big stack of books and one of them I'd never seen before. And I picked it out, paperback, 500 pages. The title was A Compendium of Trivia Information. I said, son, what in the world are you doing studying trivia information? Aren't all these questions going to be big, important things? He said, no, dad. A lot of times the contest is won by one point difference and sometimes it turns on an unimportant piece of trivia information. I said, well, let me read that book. I've read many a book that had trivia for contents, but not in the title. Now, I'd like to see a book that's honest. I- I'm glad to see an honest book that says it's trivia, so let me look at it. I want you to know when I opened it, I could not believe the collection of unessential information. And listen, I graded college freshman papers for 10 years, so I know what... I know what unessential information and trivia is, folks. I know it. And I looked at I could not believe I closed the book, handed it back, and I said, Miss, any question based on stuff in this book is not worth your time or mine. Let me give you one example. It actually listed the color sequence of Lifesaver Mints in those Lifesaver Mint packages. Can you believe that anybody in their right mind cares that the purple mint goes before the green mint and the green mint goes before the white mint? On the Lord's good earth, who cares about the color sequence of Lifesaver Mint? But at that point, the two-ton truck hit me. What if I've spent my life in the classroom as a student or professor and I've learned masses of material for time and space but don't have? A new knowledge for a new heaven and new earth. And I stand before God and God with a broken heart has to say, Bill Toler, you've learned thousands of trivia facts, but do not have the knowledge that equips you, prepares you for the new heaven and new earth. All of us in this room have some old knowledge. But is it the new knowledge that comes only with God revealed in Christ that's the new knowledge necessary for the new heaven and new earth? By the way, the word trivia that we use is an interesting word. It means something insignificant, unimportant, but that's not what the word etymologically means. That word trivia is two Latin words. Many of you may have had Latin like I had in high school. 
We had a little adage in our high school. We took Latin. It went like this. Latin is a dead language, dead as it can be. It killed all the Romans, and now it's killing me. <laughs> the way that we used to say about it. But you may remember a little Latin, and it comes from tri, meaning three. Via or wheel means road or way. Three roads. Now, how in the world does a word that means three roads come to mean something insignificant, unimportant? Well, we think we know. In central Italy, there are three roads who converge into one main road that leads to Rome. Roman officers in the army marching their soldiers usually took a break where those roads came together. There was a tree, an orchard there where you could sit down in the shade. And a smart businessman realized hot, thirsty soldiers, or hot Roman soldiers marching going to be thirsty. So he built him a beer stand. And when the officer said, all right, you have a break now, 30 minutes, and they're going to run out and sit down in the shade, they'd buy themselves a beer, run out there. So the word trivia means the level of conversation carried over by hot, sweaty Roman soldiers drinking beer in the shade. <laughs> trivia. Trivia. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I do not want to learn facts only for time. I need a knowledge that would equip me and prepare me for the new heaven and new earth. And Paul said, when I met Jesus Christ, I came to know the truth of God incarnate. And that's the knowledge for the new heaven and new earth. That's one reason why we must be missionary. We must be evangelistic. We're not trying to cram our religion down somebody's throat. But some of us with hungry hearts have found a living bread. Some of us with thirsty souls have found a living water. And we want to share it with others because we know it is and has an eternal dimension about it that brings a new knowledge for the new heaven and new earth. Something old. We all have the old knowledge. But this morning, do I speak to anyone who does not have the new? You do not really know him as your Lord and Savior. I would reach out in all love and say, listen, not to Bill Toler, but listen to one of the super geniuses. Paul says, I thought I knew all that I needed to know until I met him. And when I met him, I came to a knowledge so awesome, so great, so significant, so relevant. It made all my former knowledge as trivia. But in the next verse, he says, that's not all he got new. He says he got a new righteousness that I might have a righteousness based upon faith from Christ and not a righteousness based upon my keeping the law. Now, folks, the idea of righteousness is relevant only to persons, persons, human persons and divine persons. I'm not aware that any fish and I'm from Louisiana, but I'm not aware that any fish has a sense of righteousness. I'm good if I spare you little fish. I'm bad and commit a sin if I swallow you little fish. I'm not aware that fish have any sense of right or wrong. I'm not aware that dogs are cats. I'm not aware that other creatures, but all persons, civilized, uncivilized, barbaric, or whatever, but all civilizations, the earliest records of mankind written in a strange language called cuneiform, talk about a right and wrong, ethical right and wrong. It's peculiar to persons, but you see, there are two kinds of persons. There are human persons and there are divine persons. Now, if God is a divine person and persons have a sense of righteousness, God has a sense of righteousness, and we humans have a sense of righteousness, so there are two kinds of righteousness. God righteousness, perfect righteousness, and human righteousness, imperfect righteousness. Two kinds, perfect and imperfect. Now, John says in the new heaven and new earth, we must have a perfect righteousness because heaven won't remain perfect if one imperfect person enters it or one imperfect attitude enters it. One sin can change a perfect place. It's no longer perfect. No longer perfect. So we imperfect humans must some way, somehow, have a perfect righteousness to enter in through that 
perfect new heaven and new earth. And folks, there's only one place I know to find it. In Jesus Christ, who lived without sin, died for our sins and rose from the dead. I do not know another human being that's sinless who can provide me. And Paul says, I tried to get it by keeping the law, but law keeping leads to self-righteousness. And that's sinful. And Paul said, but when I put my faith in Christ, he gave me a righteousness total and pure. My only hope on judgment days with that hymn writer that I stand. My only hope is not my righteousness, but what Jesus Christ has done for me. There is an old kind of righteousness. There's a new kind. The old kind is imperfect. Not a one. When I was a college student in Waco at Baylor, before I started pastoring, I'd go with some other ministerial students to downtown county jail and city jail. We would visit and we would write letters. We'd bring toothpaste and combs, do things like this, make telephone calls. I began to notice something. Even the most vilest of those criminals in there, murderers waiting for trial, embezzlers, wife beaters, child abusers, you name it, I found they were not totally bad. Each one of them, even though they were heinous in their crimes, they loved a mama, they loved a child, they loved a wife. Something good, I found something good in every one of them. But I noticed something else in life. I've never met a person so good. If I could know their inner hearts and inner souls and inner desires, I would find that not a one of us is without some sin and fault. Not a one of them perfectly bad. Not a one of us perfectly good. My only hope on judgment day is not my so-called human goodness, but I will stand saying, Lord God, judge your son gave me his perfect righteousness. And that's the new kind. We all have the old, but do we have the new? One more thing in verse 10. And Paul says, when I met Christ... I came to experience a new power, a power that raised him from the dead, resurrection power. Now, folks, it doesn't take a lot to kill a person. I grew up in North Louisiana, and my father gave me a Browning automatic six, uh, 20 gauge when I was 12 or 13 years of age to hunt ducks and squirrels and stuff. But he also gave me a rifle called a 22 caliber rifle. Maybe you may not know the caliber of guns, but anyway, the 22 is a, shoots a small shell. The 22 short, as it's called, the three different kinds, long, short, long, extra long. It's so small, I could take two wire pliers this morning if I had a 22 short bullet. I could pull the slug out and then take the little casing with the powder and dump it out on my finger. There's only enough powder in that little shell that I could hold it right on the end of my finger. And there's enough power in that little pile of powder, in that bullet, in that gun, put it in my temple or your temple to kill us, as we say in North Louisiana, dead as a doornail. Now, this door, I mean, folks, you're going to be embalmed and buried. You're not in sleep and you're not in a coma. You're dead and we're going to bury you with or without embalming. But anyway, you're dead. There's a door now. Now, how much powder would it take to bring us back to life from the dead? This beautiful auditorium full of powder wouldn't have enough power to bring us back. So it follows. It takes far less to make a person dead than it does power to make us come alive. And Paul says one sin has enough power to kill us, but it took the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enough power to bring the dead, spiritually dead, back to life and give us eternal life. And Paul said, I've seen the storms. I've been in them on the Mediterranean, but I met a power that makes dead people live. 
you and I have some knowledge. We have some righteousness and we have some power. But do we have the kind that on judgment day will open the gates of the new heaven and new earth and God with his arms open as it were welcomes us to come in and be with him forever. Paul said, I thought I was ready. I had life under control, had everything that I needed. And then I met one who revealed to me I was not ready, but he gave to me what I needed most. This morning, what about you? What about you? I want us to sing a hymn of invitation together. I want Larry to come and stand in front of this auditorium, if there's even one this morning, who would say, I've been trying to live life by my good mind, my energy, my ambition. I'm a hardworking, decent person, but I realize I cannot do it by myself. I need something more than what I have. Would you open your heart and life to simple childlike faith in Christ? Walk this aisle and share this with Larry. If you're a Baptist looking for a home church, would you come and join the fellowship of this loving fellowship church? You can do it. Would you come some other way if God is speaking to you to let God have his will and his way in your heart and life? We're going to sing a hymn together that I think that you know well. If you'll join us as we sing it together. The hymn is number 552. My Jesus, I love thee. May we stand together. Let you come and stand in front as we stand and sing together, please.